Hello and welcome to another episode of the Detox Podcast, a culture and conversation podcast where you can detox from the world around you and get a window into how other people live their lives. Come detox with detox. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and on today's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking to Stephen Mitchell. Stephen is an author of multiple books, but specifically is on the show today to talk about his book, The Way of Forgiveness, A Story About Letting Go. It is a midrash retelling of the story of Joseph from the Bible, Old Testament, and he does a fantastic job fleshing it out and being able to provide a universal truth of forgiveness to readers. So a little bit about the book, uh, Mitchell's retelling of the biblical story of Joseph and his brothers interweaves the narrative with brief meditations that with their Zen surprises expand and illuminate the main themes. The engrossing tale that he has created will capture the hearts and minds of modern readers and show them that this ancient story can still challenge, delight, and astonish. With lyrical, witty, and vivid prose, Mitchell brings fresh insight to this foundational legend of betrayal and the power of forgiveness. Elizabeth Gilbert, best-selling author of Eat, Pray, Love, says that the heart cannot help but be moved and healed by the treasure to be found in these pages. So Stephen was on the show, and he read portions of his book for the listeners. So It's absolutely great. I cannot wait for you to hear it. Before we get started, I do want to go ahead and let you know about today's sponsor of the podcast, Snuffy. So Snuffy is a clothing brand about empowering you to show your weird unapologetically with bravery and confidence. 10% of profit goes to LGBTQ plus organizations led by trans people of color. Shop online now at snuffy.co. That's snuffy, S-N-U-F-F-Y dot C-O. And the owner and operator of Snuffy is great friend of the podcast, Nick Silvestri. He designed the Detox Podcast logos, both the regular one and the Pride Month one. So if you like them and you want to go support Nick, go on over to snuffy.co and feel good about empowering yourself to show you're weird. I will be right back with my conversation with Steven after this. Welcome back to the Detox Podcast. With me at this time is renowned author, Mr. Stephen Mitchell. Stephen, how are you doing today? Just very well. Thank you, Joe. Good. I hope you are too. Yes, I am. You know, I'm down here in Texas and I'm trying to stay warm right now. I had to bust out my sweater collection the other day. And, you know, it's, uh, this is a joke to some people because they hear in the 40s and the high 40s and they're like, ah, it's not that cold. But here in Texas, when it we're used to triple digit heat, it is quite cold. So I'm adjusting to the change. But, um, I want to start out uh, this episode because we're here to talk about the way of forgiveness. And I think there's a lot of great stuff in that. I mean, the story of Joseph in general is something being named Joseph myself was something that I uh, knew very well. And on an intimate level growing up, it was a story that I was told over and over again. And it was a story that my parents told me about specifically because they said you were named after this biblical character. That was where we got the inspiration for your name. But I'd love to really start out and, and give the listeners a little bit of background on you and, and talk about what were some of the origins for you when you first decided to become a writer? What drew you to that path and what made you ultimately start writing uh, a lot of the books that you've written? And then we'll dig into The Way of Forgiveness. Okay, good. Yes. Um, well, I backed into it, actually, <laughs> and uh, that uh, involves a, a, a story. I'll make it. The short version, um, 
when I was a young man, I was, I was 22 and a graduate student. Um, my first girlfriend, the love of my life at that point, broke up with me. Mm. And in the aftermath, I didn't know what to do with the pain in my heart. It, it wouldn't heal and it was uh, devastating. Right. And so I found myself attracted to um, the book of Job in the Bible. At that point, I knew nothing about uh, Buddhism or Taoism or anything but the our Western culture. Sure. And the book of Job was the place in Western literature and religion that dealt most deeply with the question of human suffering, I thought. Right. And so I read it over and over again in the King James Version. And there was a magnetic attraction for me because in at the end of the book of Job, you may remember there's a long section <clears throat> that is usually called the voice from the whirlwind where God, a, a much larger God than in the rest of the Bible, I thought, answers Job about the question of, of suffering. And it's an answer that has baffled critics and theologians for a couple of thousand years. Right. And it baffled me as well. But it it not only baffled me, it, it, um, it entranced me. There was something in there that, that made me think that the the poet who had written that book, especially that section, had seen something about human suffering, an end of human suffering, that if I could understand, then I could deal with the pain in my heart. Right. So I read it over and over, and then I decided that in order to get closer to it, I would have to learn Hebrew. The, the little Hebrew that I learned as uh, for my bar mitzvah was totally inadequate. And besides, <laughs> I had long forgotten it. So, so I, I, I learned Hebrew and um, I, I read, I began to read Job in the original. And the, the Hebrew of the book of Job is very peculiar. I sometimes tell people that learning Hebrew by reading the book of Job is like learning English by learning, by reading Finnegan's Wake. Right, yeah. Very bizarre. <laughs> That's a good comparison. <laughs> so, and at a certain point, I, I realized that I would have to learn uh, biblical textual scholarship. And then later on, I would have to, I realized I'd have to learn ancient um, uh, comparative Semitic philology. It, one thing led to another. Right, yeah. And by that time, I was really committed to understanding somehow, if, if I possibly could. And as part of the process of becoming more intimate with that work, uh, I decided to translate it, not only the meaning but the music, because it has a, a, it's written in verse in ancient yes. Hebrew, which very few people who don't know Hebrew know. Um, and there is a power and beauty to the sound of the words mm. that no translation, including the great King James, had begun to convey, in my opinion. So I, I, my intention was to translate the music as well as the meaning, and that meant translating it into English verse, a, a, a very um, um, rugged, masculine three-beat line. So I, that was my project. And um, one thing led to another, and it took me basically 
seven years before I realized that I would not understand that voice from the whirlwind until I had met somebody who understood it in the flesh. Right. And that took me to a possible trip to India, which I never made because I bumped into a Zen master before I could leave uh, the country. And uh, that led to many years of study with him. But after an, a first intensive year of, of meditation, I found myself in the middle of Job's whirlwind and everything became completely clear. And I, I understood the, the, the cause of suffering and the end of suffering. And, right. uh, and in my other, the, the decades of meditation practice after that was a question of further refinement and clarification of that insight. So that's a long answer to your question. <laughs> how did I get involved with writing? That was my first project. It's so cool to me, especially to hear someone that talks about the way in which the, the, um, for lack of a better word, the Old Testament was written in ancient Hebrew because I studied Hebrew in college. Um, do not ask me to translate any text right now. It has left me a while ago. But one of the things that was really interesting to me that my professor taught me was the fact that, hey, these specific books were written in this specific prose or this specific way, which is indicative of how they are intended to be consumed. You've got books written with a historical bent. You've got books written in poetry. You've got books written and passages written in very much of a legal uh, transcription. And so I think when we talk about how ancient languages get, or ancient texts get uh, have some things lost in translation, we have to even peel that back more and say it's not even just maybe we're losing the thought or the intent behind the word, but we're also losing a deeper level of understanding of the original language and of the original text because of the way in which it's written, just as you would describe. So I think it's so perfect to to talk about that because it's so it's so relevant to trying to understand the full context of anything when it's written and how yeah. it's written. And and over the over the years and the centuries, with both the Hebrew Bible and um, and the Gospels, uh, there was a lot of material that was added to right. to an original core. So one of my um, fascinations is to see how close I can get to the original text and peeling away those later editions. Um, and uh, so when I've translated texts, uh, portions of the gospels in my book, The Gospel According to Jesus, or in um, my translation of Genesis, or in this new book, The Way of Awakening, um, I've, I've done enough scholarly homework to be able to, I think, get a, at least closer than the uh, committee translations that are usually used by people, um, which, basically translate the, the, the later um, compilations, which include the, the additions to the original text. So to me, that's a fascinating process. Um, in, in the way of forgiveness, what I've done is take the, um, the original Joseph story and elaborate on that. And what I hope is a, um, uh, a helpful and interesting way uh, by using the Jewish, ancient Jewish technique called midrash which is um a, a free 
uh, elaboration in order to get closer to the text. Um, and and uh, so that's what I've done here by, um, by adding to the story, deepening the story, going yes. into the characters' inner worlds, which um, the uh, Hebrew storyteller doesn't do. Um, uh, it's um, what makes the story so wonderful in many ways um, by compressing it. There's such a, a great degree of um, an amount of material in, in such a, a small space. You get a whole you know, 500 page novel in 40 pages. And right. it's a, a great testament to the genius of the original storyteller, but also there are great gaps in the story and, and one can, at least uh, to my mind, I could walk into those gaps and, um, and find great treasures in them and, and convey them to the modern reader who's interested in, in um, in exploring with me. Yes. And, you know, I think that's so prevalent to, to recognize the universal truth that is so important for a story such as this one in that there is, you know, there is this, this compassionate story of an individual who has, I, I, I was even thinking about it in these contexts in terms and ways. So reading your book, I was, Brought, it brought up some ideas of which I'd never really thought through when approaching the story of Joseph. So a, for instance, would be um, when I'm thinking about this person and he seems oblivious that his other brothers don't have a beautiful coat and don't have, you know, why do they have to work and why, why are they not getting better, better um, portions of meal or all of these different things. He's just oblivious to the privilege that he has. And it's something that I didn't consider in that way. And he's, I think it's a good example of somebody who's not aware of the benefits that they've been given. But then you see this whole arc that he goes through to understand where he came from and to appreciate the steps and the journeys that he goes to, to and through to be able to have this great story of forgiveness with his brothers and his family and have this great uh, moment at the end of the story where they're all reunited. And it's, it's like this wonderful compassionate story that I think seems uh, there was something that I believe you referenced where you were like the, the, the story, the character quote unquote character of God is fairly absent from this story in the sense completely, that, right. Completely. Yes. Completely absent. Ex except when Joseph talks about God. Right. But exactly. There's no character. There's no God character in right. the story. Right. And I think in that sense, it gives it a very relatable quality in the story, in the sense that you're able to, as a reader, see yourself in Joseph's shoes and, and by prosing out the way that you write the story in the way of forgiveness allows one to identify even more. So I would love to, knowing all of that and, and my thoughts, I would love to ask you, what was your motivation for writing this book and why was, um, why was now the right time to release it? Um, well, I think any time is the right time. <laughs> fair, fair, uh, we, very fair. We can, we can all use a lesson in forgiveness. Yes, um, very much so. And um, and this, you know, one of the things that attracted me to the Joseph story, uh, I've had decades of attraction to it, 
but Joseph seems to me the most spiritual, spiritually mature yes. character in the whole Bible. Yes. Um, he's, um, he's somebody who uh, has become forgiveness. And when you, when you um, realize that his brothers tried to murder him, it, it, it takes a lot to uh, overcome that kind of experience. Right. Um, but, um, but what the story does in such a brilliant way, the original story is to follow a character who begins as a spoiled brat, as yes. you know, the, the chosen one who, who is so oblivious to his chosenness and to the favoritism that his father shows him that he um, basically walks right past his brothers and do doesn't even see them. Yeah. And they, they know this and, and are, uh, for understandable reasons, um, in a continual state of, um, of, of anger and resentment at right. him. I mean, this is the natural reaction yeah. of somebody that you, uh, that you uh, treat with, with not, not even with disdain, but with complete obliviousness. And so, you know, I, I, uh, I went into that rather more deeply in the beginning chapters. And then, um, you know, uh, Joseph's father, Jacob, too, is in a state of obliviousness mm -hmm. because he doesn't see what, for instance, his, um, his buying the coat of many colors will mean to the other sons. It's, it's an act of, um, of great affection on his part, but it's, uh, the favoritism is, is uh, outrageous and the brothers react in, in a, a predictable way. And then when they throw him into a pit instead of killing him, um, that's the place where I saw, that I saw as uh, the place of his transformation mm. from spoiled brat to somebody with uh, a greater spiritual awareness. And, you know, I, at some point in our talk, I'd love to be able to read the short chapters that, that deal with Joseph in the pit, because that's, um, no pun intended, that's pivotal to, to uh, what happens to him and to the right. person he becomes, to the large-souled, um, forgiving, brilliant person that he becomes. He starts out, you know, with, with, with such amazing gifts, the gift of being um, magnetically beautiful and the gift of being um, brilliantly intelligent as well. And he doesn't know how to use gifts except to um, to be the favorite, the chosen one. You know? Right. But in the pit, something happens that triggers uh, a change from from top to bottom in his character, and um, that's what allows him to have the great success that he has in later life to become the the prime minister of of the most civilized country in the world. And yeah. And, uh, and to be somebody who can hold the state of forgiveness for his formerly murderous brothers. So yeah. I think that that experience inside the pit is what makes the whole, the whole arc of the story possible. Definitely. You know, I was thinking through how this book and this core universal truth of forgiveness is so relevant, especially in what feels as a very tumultuous time um, 
in, in our country. And so I think through how, if, so uh, let me, let me frame it this way and that I know a lot of folks who are very familiar with the story of Joseph and are familiar with, yeah, he was, you know, had privilege or was a spoiled kid. And then his brother sold him into slavery and the yada, 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 he's up there helping Pharaoh, like that kind of a thing. And it's like, what, what relevance does that have to me? And I think by examining the story that so many people are familiar with in this framework of, yes, we can have the story of forgiveness. We can have reconciliation, but there are some growth steps that need to be taken to achieve that is crucial, I think, in our, in our understanding, you know? And I know so many people who would benefit from getting to read it in such a way that you framed the story of this ultimate way of forgiveness from a person who has such a deep spiritual maturity and understanding. Um, and I would say, what would you hope would be something, I guess, maybe not even readers, but I would say, what do you feel? Well, yeah, let's say that. What do you want ultimately the readers of this book and listeners of this show to get out of it that they can then apply currently to their lives. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I tried to do in the book, and if I succeeded, um, here's what would happen. Um, you know, uh, Jesus tells us to forgive not only right. seven times, but 70 times seven. And that's a, a constant theme in um, the uh, authentic sections of the Gospels, um, but the Gospels right. don't show us what that looks like. This story does, and anybody who immerses him or herself in the original story, and hopefully in this book, The Way of Forgiveness, will feel in his or her blood and bones what that's like. So the story gives you uh, a, a flesh and blood experience of forgiveness in the most radical terms yeah. with, with people who have tried to kill you. Um, usually, well, let, let me say often people feel that forgiveness is something that they're doing to somebody else, that it's, some, that it's a magnanimous gesture to somebody who's a little in need of some right. spiritual counseling, or there's a there's a uh, hierarchical um, feeling, but it, you know uh, what I've tried to portray in this book is that it's not like that. It's not. It's it's a, a realization that right. forgiveness isn't necessary. If you feel that you're forgiving somebody, there's still that um, um, hierarchy between you, and it's not a completely level experience but if you see if you have let go of the original offense to the extent where there's no longer an offense then there's no longer forgiveness then there's something much deeper than that right there's love left there's there you know and and when joseph sees his brothers the, the tears that he sheds of joy are not of um, somebody who has um, who sees them as ex-murderers or as wannabe murderers. They're simply 
yeah. brothers that he loves in the same way that he loved them as a young boy before his arrogance got him into all that trouble. It's it's a new world. It's it's a um, uh, it's it's a rebirth into a love that he had before. So you know that's what the experience felt like to me, and I hope that I've conveyed that to readers too. And um, you know, if they if they can identify with this character, as I think many people will be able to, um, then they can uh, have the same experience as he did through reading the book. Yeah, I really like that. It's this continuous state of being in which your let me let me see if I can rephrase it a little bit. It's not. Um, it's often. The act of forgiveness can be this, as you said, this almost power dynamic where it's you are giving forgiveness to somebody else. You are you are the person in control. You are choosing to give the forgiveness. And now there's this kind of dynamic that exists between you and someone else or you and a group of people. Whereas if you're in this constant state of forgiveness, it is within you and through you. You're no longer thinking about the act of forgiving someone. You are within the act of forgiving someone to where you can see that love for someone else. And you're not worried about, did I forgive them? Did I not forgive them? Where did we leave things? You're just existing currently. No. And I like to say uh, forgiveness is the realization Mm. that forgiveness is not necessary. My, my wife, Byron Katie, has a, a wonderful definition of forgiveness. She says, forgiveness is the realization that what you thought mm. happened didn't. Yeah. And that's something to chew on. <laughs> I like that. Um, <laughs> it's, not, it's not a denial of, of the original act, for instance, you know, that the brothers tried to murder Joseph, but it's a realization that the, the way you're framing that experience uh, is mistaken. It's something that um, your ego has set up in a certain way. And when you can look beyond ego, you can see that um, what what they were thinking and believing was causing what they did. For example, you know, you, Joseph Joseph's arrogance and unconsciousness was causing in his brothers the kind of resentment and hatred that resulted in their action, that he was at least as responsible as they were for, for what they did, and that their ignorance, their own um, uh, willingness to take resentment and anger to the extent that they did was what, what had caused that action, that actually, you know, uh, they were innocent in the sense right. of ignorant of their own motives. So. In any case, uh, it's it's a, a a something that I go into in, at at some length in the book, and I hope absolutely. It's you know, I think through uh, another question I want to ask you, and then we can get into uh, having you read a section of your book as well. But I'd love to to tee you up with this question to say, you know, I think it's an interesting choice and one that I was a big fan of. You mentioned mid midrash, right? Mid midrash the. Midrash, thank you. The way in which you Midrash, wrote yeah. um, and informed the book and added additional um, elements to really flesh out the overall story for a narrative prose style of, of, of reading. And so I think what was interesting to me 
was that this was one of the first, perhaps the first book that I had read from a biblical variety that had done that, that had not felt the need to be more of a biblical commentary as opposed to this type of prose and work. And so I'd love to know what was the, the ultimate driving factor for you in writing in this way to make it stand out and apart from a traditional like book on, for instance, a book of Genesis or a Joseph story within Genesis, biblical commentary that I think most folks who are listening to this may be familiar with. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm a biblical scholar, but scholarship by itself can seem very dry. And, you know, putting it in terms of uh, writing it in terms of, of a story of a, of a novelization, which is kind of taking Midrash to a, a further level, is something that um, to me is fascinating and makes the story even more fascinating than it, it is in the, in the original. So um, it's, it was giving, um, flesh and flesh and blood yes. to something that doesn't always have that and let me let me just give you two examples of what things that fascinated me in the in the gaps in between the sentences in the original um the storyteller the genesis storyteller says uh that jacob loved joseph more than all his other sons yeah period he gives uh, he he gives a, a little bit of motivation and he says, because he was the child of his old age, but that doesn't really hold up because right. there are other children of his old age. Um, and he doesn't treat them that way. So uh, I wanted to, to explore that gap by exploring Jacob's mentality and his relationship with his beloved wife, Rachel, and um, the other wife uh, Leah and his two concubines and and see how that played into his feelings for Joseph and the other sons and um, there were a number of other elements that the original storyteller doesn't go into and this really illuminates the whole given of the book Joseph's chosenness and his his uh, the favoritism that his father took favoritism in a in a parent right. doesn't lead yeah. to good places always um, and then there was another, uh, one of many other elements in the original, uh, when Joseph becomes the uh, prime minister of Egypt and the, the uh, pharaoh hands over the whole country to him, uh, he also makes Joseph a gift of uh, a wife, um, uh, Asana. That's the only place in the Genesis story where she's mentioned, but I felt... Uh, interested in exploring that too because what 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 would a woman be what might a woman be like who is a treasure who the pharaoh has given to joseph what might their relationship have been like um that re, that uh, resulted among other things in two beloved sons um and so i i spent um a couple of chapters on that and um and expanded that and i think in doing so expanded joseph's the sense of Joseph's whole life after he gets to Egypt. Um, what, what would it, what would it be like for a um, a brilliant, beautiful person who's been given uh, the greatest power in the civilized universe at the time? What would it be like for him, in addition to have right. a, a fulfilled married life? 
So that adds to the character and it makes the story even yeah. more profound, it seemed to me. Those are two among dozens of examples. Well, I would love to have you read a section of your book if you are uh, ready and willing to. I think that would be really excellent. Yes. Yes, I'll, I'll read you about... Uh, they're, they're very short chapters, sure. but they're three chapters about Joseph in the pit, which, which as I said, is um, crucial to the whole story. So this, 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 is, uh, this takes place after the brothers have thrown him into the pit and um, right before they sell him to um, merchants who are on their way to, to Egypt. So this first chapter is called In the Pit. At first, he was too sore and frightened to move. He kept drifting in and out of consciousness and he lost track of time. Was it only for hours that he had been lying here on the cold stone slab or had it been for days? He heard some animal groaning and he was frightened again. Then he realized that the animal was him. As the pain subsided a bit, he was able to think. Why had his brothers done this to him? How could they be so cruel? How could they not see him for what he was, the chosen one, the salvation of them all? He felt sad, angry, and bewildered. Nothing made sense. Then in the midst of his confusion, a glimmer of insight. Something he had done had so deeply offended his brothers that they wanted to kill him. Was it something or was it everything, his whole way of being? Across the endless shivering hours, he could see himself from the outside as the pampered favorite who sits at the right hand of the father, expecting the whole world to come worship at his feet. He was appalled. His heart ached at the arrogance of, of it and at his foolish sense of entitlement. He realized that he was entitled to nothing, not even his own life. Naked, chilled, bruised, blood caked, terrified, stinking of urine and feces, he prayed not for forgiveness, but for a little understanding of how he had gotten himself into such an unholy mess. He prayed for a little humility, which if he ever emerged alive, he could follow through the night as a caravan follows the North Star. Learning humility. The way up and the way down are one and the same, wrote an ancient philosopher. The stone cistern where Joseph lay was the womb of his transformation. He had to descend to the depths of himself and stay there in that inner darkness without refuge, without hope. This was the only path that could lead him upward. Then he had to find his way through a world of paradox where exile is homecoming, slavery is freedom, and not knowing is the ultimate wisdom. No one of course wants to suffer. And yet the fortunate among us manage to learn from our suffering what can be learned nowhere else. We become clearly, joyously, aware of the cause of all suffering. Instead of sleep, the remembered pain drips into the heart and an understanding dawns on us, even against our will, that there is a violent grace that shapes our ends. Humility follows as a natural result. We learn how to lose control 
we discover that we never had it in the first place. Humility looks very ordinary. It's hello and goodbye. At first, it may seem like dying. What you were so proud of when you were flying high, you now recognize as selfish. It falls apart under scrutiny, and there is a profound change that takes place within you. There is no humiliation or shame in any of this. It's total surrender to what is. You discover that you have let go into an intelligence that is incomparably vaster than yours, and it's the gentlest, most comfortable feeling. You stand in what's left of you, and you die to self, and you keep on dying. It's like a tree that lets go of its leaves. That beautiful clothing has fallen away and the tree just stands there in the cold of winter, totally exposed, totally surrendered. And the third and last chapter uh, called a, a Gradual Letting Go. For a day and a night, for days and nights it seemed as he drifted in and out of consciousness, Joseph lay in the pit, struggling with the realization that had dawned on him. The cold, filth, and physical pain were negligible in comparison with the moral pain he was feeling. Memories of his arrogance and unkindness toward his brothers flickered through his mind and made him heartsick. He was deeply ashamed of himself. It felt as if he had become Adam in the story his father told him so many times and had eaten the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was a good thing because suddenly his eyes were opened and he knew that he was naked before God, before himself, stripped of all defense and justification. How could he have been so self-absorbed, such a sleepwalker, and where had his sense of chosenness led him but to this great sadness which sat on his heart now like the weight of the sorry world. He needed to make amends to his brothers, that was clear. But how? An apology seemed like a poor kind of restitution. Besides, they would be too enraged to listen. They would see it as an attempt to talk his way out of danger. Anyway, the point was moot. He might be left to die here. He might be dragged out and beaten to death. The shame burned inside him. Forgive me, he prayed, not to God, but to his brothers, though he knew this was absurd. There was no way out. There were no solutions. There was nothing to do, nothing to pray, but may your will be done. He found himself sitting up now with his back against one of the pit's stone walls. Overhead, the stars looked on in their frigid brilliance. May your will be done. But there was something very odd about the prayer. Wasn't it too an act of arrogance? Who was he to be telling God what should or shouldn't happen? Of course God's will would be done. How could it not? Everything that happened was God's will or else it wouldn't have happened. You would have to be dull indeed if you didn't realize this. Had his brothers acted against God's will? It was insane even to think it. So strange as it sounded, it was God who had thrown him into this pit. 
It was God who would let him live now or die. His brothers ultimately had nothing to do with it. They were just God's instruments. And he himself, think what he might, do what he might, could do nothing but God's will. Not I, but you, he thought. Not what I want, but what you want. I am not doing any of this, nor are my brothers. Whatever we think we are doing, we are all doing what is best in your sight. We are all doing your will, dear Lord, because we are all the work of your hands. This conclusion was not reasoned out. It came to him in a flash. It was not an idea. It was a certainty. All the shame and sorrow he had been feeling began to dissipate as if the sun were beginning to shine out from behind a layer of impenetrable fog. Even more, he began to be aware of, could it be a sense of elation rising in his chest? Was life really this simple? Could what had happened actually be something good? What he had been struggling against was now letting go of him or he of it. He had been trying to fight against the current of reality and now he was riding it, his mind a sleek skiff in the onrushing river, letting it take him wherever it wished. The direction didn't matter. His life didn't matter. All that mattered was the letting go. That's good. It is, you can see the perfect arc of him getting into that ongoing state of forgiveness and the journey he takes to get there is crucial. And I think it's so prevalent throughout the book that he is in that state of constant being of forgiveness and how it informs the decisions that in steps that he takes throughout the rest of the story. What one last question before we end up wrapping here. And I would love to know what do you hope or how do you hope folks take the lessons learned in this book and directly apply it into their life right now in November, in November, 2020. Mm -hmm. um, my hope is that someone who dives into the book and is immersed in the story will become a um, yeah. more open-minded person for starters. And that really is everything, open-mindedness. What, what, what Joseph learns in the pit and what he continues to learn uh, through his experience of slavery, uh, and, and this is really the other side of forgiveness, is that we can never know what's good or what's bad. Slavery, if he had, if he had been in his ordinary uh, pre-experience uh, of the pit, um, would have seemed to him a horror, a, a, the end of his life, something that would be a misery that he could never, um, never endure. Um, and yet it becomes a source of strength, not only to him, but to the people around him and uh, to the people who are, who are later placed under his control as the head of right. his uh, master's household. So there's a continual series of surprises in this story for Joseph and for the reader that opens up uh, the, uh, the, the, the judgment of what's good and what's bad. 
So it's that open mind that has, that allows him his success in Egypt and his uh, his encounter with his brothers too. Um, so that's one thing that I think um, can be a, a really transformative um, realization when reading this book um, and, and afterward that the, the other side of forgiveness is, is the open mind that doesn't get caught in judgments of good and bad. And really, you know, that's what um, the Genesis story in the, in the Garden of Eden teaches as well that when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you subject yourself to a, to a narrowing of the whole world. Um, but that the tree of life, the opposite, the antidote to the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is right. the tree of the not knowing, not knowing what's good and what's bad. And that, as, as the book of Proverbs says, uh, the, the tree of life is really wisdom, wisdom is the open mind, is the not knowing what's good and what's bad. And um, that I think is a lesson that, that people, uh, that can transform someone's life. And that um, if, if uh, that my, my greatest hope for people is that they can really um, understand this lesson. I love that. Well, if people wanna follow you and see what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, they can because I'm not on social media. <laughs> I'm a pre-social media kind of guy. So what they, what they can do um, is, um, you know, when, when a book of mine comes out, it's, it's, uh, it'll be with uh, St. Martin's. And I have another one coming out next year called The First Christmas, which is a, a midrash, my oh, midrash nice. on the nativity story, um, which is a, a 200 page book uh, that elaborates on a, a basically a couple of paragraphs in the Gospels of, of Matthew and Luke. So uh, they, if they enjoy the, uh, the way of forgiveness, they might look forward to the first Christmas. Otherwise, uh, um, they can follow um, my wife, Byron Katie, who has a very substantial um, social media presence. And, and that would be a way they can really um, have a much more powerful experience of of the don't know mind, the open mind that leads to compassion and forgiveness and all other spiritual goodies. That's awesome. So that's what that's I fantastic. would recommend. Um, we do need a hashtag for this episode. Should we use hashtag the way of forgiveness? Yeah, that would be great. And, Perfect. and then send that to my publisher. Um, again, Absolutely. I'm, I'm in this space where hashtags are a foreign country to me. So, <laughs> Fair enough. So, uh, but, but your listeners will know. Absolutely. Well, Stephen, thank you again so much for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure and an oh, utter my delight. Pleasure. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it, it, Joe. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, listeners, until next time, well, I'll be back with another great episode next week. But until next time, hashtag the way of forgiveness. And as always, I will hashtag be a better dad. If you know of an interesting person or story that needs to be told, please reach out to me at detoxpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Detox Podcast, or visit DetoxPodcast.com. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you like the show. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps us out. Link is in the show notes. Finally, thanks for listening. Please come back next week when we'll have another interesting conversation. And special thanks to my producers, Ben Lawant and Galan Aldaco. Without your help and support, this show wouldn't be possible. Thanks so much, guys. Detox is a production of Vocal 
For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W.com.